Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And today I'm talking to Cosmo Landersman, journalist, author, editor, and a man who can genuinely claim to have changed Britain's cultural landscape. An habitué of the Groucho Club in its 1990s heyday, it was then that he, his then wife Julie Birchall, and Toby Young ganged together to create the Modern Review, a periodical that gave a highbrow spin to lowbrow culture. So of course, when we met at his London flat, we talked 21st century culture, growing up with theatrical parents, public splits, and personal tragedy. Cosmo, we're sitting in your living room. We're at the top of a house in Islington. We've got a beautiful balcony overlooking Islington. I'm looking at your bookshelf. There's your old files from the Modern Review there. See, so you've got Jermaine Greer on the shelf. She famously drove someone out of one of your parents' dinner parties. <laughs> you've got Paul Johnson up there. This is obviously a safe space for you and a comfortable place. And I'm grateful for you allowing me to come in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And I wanted to interview you because I feel like I followed your journey in journalism. You shine bright in journalism. You're one of the London luminaries. You're a very funny man. You've got a backstory. I want to get to a point where we talk about what you're going to do in the future, but yeah. I can't possibly interview Cosmo Landsman without starting with your family. So can we start at the beginning? Right. right. You were born in St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri. My parents were kind of showbiz parents. They yeah. had a nightclub where people like Barbara Streisand and Lenny Bruce and Woody Allen would appear. Then they got tired of America and they decided in 1964 to come to London for one year. That was the year of Swinging London. And they had only one phone number, that of Peter Cook, the comedian. At that time, Peter and his wife, Wendy, were the kind of great couple where you, you know, you had dinner with Alan Bennett and the Beatles and everybody. So they stuck around for a bit for the next 50 years or so. And my parents were old bohemians. My dad was from, from St. Louis, but he moved to New York and they hung out with the Beats, you know, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. They hung out with Chet Baker in Rome in the 50s. They knew everybody. They had cocktails with Bessie Smith, LSD with Tim Leary. I mean, they just, they lived a rich life. So I grew up in this kind of crazy, bohemian, arty environment and moaned about it for all those years. That's interesting, because you, you talk about sort of reading Russian novelists in your bedroom. Well, yeah. your brother's off making music and following a bohemian lifestyle. Yeah. You, you, very early on, chose a slightly different path. I was the uptight one. Were you reacting against that kind of yeah. bohemianism? They had How, a very else open relation. How else could I rebel against my parents? But it was very difficult. They were having all the fun. They were having the great parties. Yeah. And I, at that time, when I was a teenager, I wanted, I think a lot of children do this, wanted 
what we call normal parents, a conservative mom and dad to yeah. be like normal people. Like my friends at school had normal parents. I had the weird parents in the weird house. And there was a piece you wrote, this sort of when your mum invited you to gigs, there's your inner voice speaking in one of your pieces where you're cursing her for, you know, yeah. not asking how the children are and yeah. what have you done at work this yeah. week. And you know she's ringing to get you to one of her gigs nearby. Yes. Was that a real resentment? It was a real resentment. I felt uh, my parents became at some point very... Uh, they just talked about themselves and their careers all the time. And what I wrote in my book, Starstruck, was about this sort of self-obsession, which was very American. And in the book, I try to trace that my parents' self-obsession became a kind of national self-obsession that we all, from the late 80s onwards, you, I saw a transformation in English life where people just talked about themselves a lot, and we're still living very much with that England now. In a bit of the book, you talk about your dad. He used this phrase, you say, he must be one of the most well-known unknowns in the world. That's because he wanted more and more attention, right? He could never get enough attention. He was well-known within certain circles. Writers knew him, pop stars knew him. But he wasn't, you know, mainstream fame. And my parents wanted to be more famous. They were very ahead of the curve in that crazed need for celebrity because it's a form of affirmation that they wanted. By the way, they were very talented. They tended to be ahead of their time on the things that they did. And, you know, my mother's motto was that she wanted on her gravestone was, it was a good life, but it wasn't commercial. How did you feel about her choice of records on Desert Island Disc when she picked one of her own tracks? <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> but the proud thing of that time was that I understand that my mother also, for her special item that you can bring, chose cannabis seeds. <laughs> yeah. And this provoked the largest number of complaints. To <laughs> Is that right? I missed that. I missed up that. Up until that time. Yeah. Uh, by, the, by the way, I, I, I'm actually, having done my research on this, I'm falling in love with your mom. <laughs> I, I mean, her lyrics are... Uh, she was a very talented lyricist. She was a very talented lyricist. <laughs> In that, one of the reviews of your books was Geordie Gregg, which made me chuckle as well, given his new role as the yeah. editor of the Daily Mail. Yeah. But he said, thank goodness you were born with a sense of humour because you still showed love and forgiveness for your parents. But when I read into the book, had you fully forgiven them when you wrote that book? Some people didn't like the book, friends of theirs, because they thought it was an act of revenge. I can't deny there was an element of sort of payback but also I hoped, I thought Geordie was very perceptive to see that it was affectionate, that it yeah. was loving. It wasn't just a nasty, you know, sort of Hollywood memoir where you just slag your parents off. Was it cathartic writing it? Yeah. How did you feel when you delivered the manuscript to the publisher? I felt good about that. I was worried how my parents would take it. So I read them very selective bits, and they, and they loved it. Yeah, of course they would. And they loved it when it came out. They loved it when it came out, yes. They got a bit of attention for it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me that you wrote it at the age you were. Were you kind of divorcing your parents when you wrote that? Were you sort of escaping that overshadowing need for attention that they had was this you kind of finding a space for yourself when you were I think it? partly I think partly I you know I had my own independent life by then that those were the teenage years it's very hard when you're a teenager and you have one of those dads big personality dads that go into a room and dominate a room and the funniest guy in the room my dad was a very funny man and there I was trying to get attention of people and no <laughs> one was interested so that was difficult 
And I, you know, I thought he was funny too, but I wanted to be the, get some attention too, as all teenage boys and girls want to make their own mark. But you're funny and you're a very humorous writer. But I didn't feel it at the time because my dad was so funny. No one noticed I was funny. Was he funnier than you? Yes, at that time, definitely. And did you use humour as a defence to hide your sadness? Later in life, I think I did. I think for many years I was very sad. I was very angry at my parents. You know, I found their lifestyle very difficult to accept. It took me a long while to accept it. When I hit my 50s, I realised that though I was moderately successful in life, Mm. I got to that point by reacting to everything. I'd reacted to a parochial small town in the Midlands under Thatcher's 80s. I'd come down to London. I'd been sneered at by metropolitan elites. I needed to prove myself. I wanted to work harder. Mm. It, It seems to me that some of your writing is almost, you know, you're reacting to that childhood with big parents. You're coping with the trauma of their lifestyle that was obviously very difficult when you're a child having mm. those personalities around you and you're almost trying to understand them in a way that allows you to forgive them am i over interpreting that no i think there's a bit of that i i should point out for listeners you know my parents had a very unconventional marriage they had an open marriage and they talked about their open marriage all the time and in public. And that was a great source of embarrassment to me as a teenager. Yeah. So, you know, that, things like that I found very hard to adjust to. But eventually I think I have it. I don't think all my life is about in reaction against my parents. I think, you know, they're mater- I'm a writer. I take what material that I have. Yeah. My story is part of that story and a part of what happened in England. So I, I use that material. Now I write about other things. In their open marriage, there's you. You're slightly embarrassed about their open marriage and mm. their sort of publicity, but you always write about sex. I know because people, <laughs> I'd like to defend myself and just say I'm commissioned to write about that sort of stuff. <laughs> Frankly, I wouldn't necessarily write about it. Uh, I, okay, that's a lie. I take that one back. <laughs> I've come in clean. Yes, I like writing about sex. I'm interested in sex, and you can get. A, I, I like to think I write about sex in a kind of funny way. That's my justification. It's gentle. It's slightly self-deprecating. Yes, I'm the victim of the joke. But, I mean, did you find the fact that your parents had an open relationship, was it difficult for you to either have sex or form relationships in that way? No. No, I don't think so. I can blame my parents for lots of things, but I'm not going to blame them. (laughs) I'm not going to blame them on that one. I screwed up my own life. I've got to take full credit for that. You you end up marrying Julie Birchall. Uh Uh-huh. One of the biggest personalities in journalism and writing. You know, arguably as big a figure as your parents in terms of personality. Yeah. Were you attracted to someone with as large a personality because you'd had that parental upbringing? Uh, I don't think so, because I had previous girlfriends that weren't that kind of large and imposing. I don't know, you know, Julie was just at that time incredibly beautiful and funny and smart and pretty bloody irresistible you know it's not a mystery it's it was very clear and in that time i've read a piece you've recently written of where you sort of talk about cultural elitism but you're not really being culturally elitist what you're saying is people should have the right to disagree about culture and and fiercely yeah. argue yeah was part of the the interest you had in each other a literary one where you would have cultural disagreements I would say, <laughs> yes, we did. We had, yes, she was a very lively, extremely opinionated person, 
she was in her Stalinist phase, and I was expected to follow the party line on many issues, and God help me when I, when I didn't do that. Oh, yes, I, but it was I, never dull. I'm familiar with Stalinist phases. I'm sure you know, sure sure you know all about that. But I, in, in your piece, you said you sort of lamented people just respecting difference in what people like culturally is the same. Let, let me put something else to you. When, yeah. when I was a kid growing up in Kidderminster again, we were devoted to the specials. We'd wear mm. our Fred Perry's mm. symbols of working class culture. And the new romantics came along and I couldn't cope with it. Mm. I utterly loathed them. Mm. The music, the dress, mm. the lifestyle. And it took me a bit of while in life to sort of realise it didn't really matter. These were people creating things and mm. making different kinds of music that didn't appeal to me. They were wearing clothes that were different, but they were expressing themselves in a different way. Mm. And I tried to convince myself that I should respect all creators. Even Big that, mistake, Tom. Yeah, but why, though? Cause I read because your I don't think you should necessarily confer respect on things that you don't like, that you think are trashy, that you think are imbecilic. I think it is a misapplication of respect. I like a world where we're, the you that hated New Romantics, I'm much more in sympathy with, because the passion of your specials commitment, I think is a wonderful thing. And that's what music means to you. It's a part of who you are. It's tribal. It's very deep and in a way kind of dark and sometimes. And I think that's a great thing to have with music as opposed to the kind of, you know, I, I people say, I love all sorts of music. Well, to me, that means that you don't particularly love any kind of music. But I, I, what I don't like is dissing people who make things that I don't like. Well, why do you call it dissing? Why not? Why isn't it just critical engagement? Mm, don't you see a movie and you think, my God, that was badly made. Why shouldn't you say it? Uh, well, I think you could say it, but in a respect, it's like when you say, I'm not going to, I just, I don't want to listen to anything by Rex Orange County. My yeah. boy loves Rex Orange County, but I don't want to diss Rex Orange County. No, you don't want to dix your boy. Maybe. That's what you don't want to dix. Yeah, I understand that. Maybe, maybe. I still don't think you're culturally... You, 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 the, the headline was in praise of cultural elitism. Well, that headline is... That's a spectator headline. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as anti-elitist as some people. There's nothing wrong with elites that everyone is allowed to join and enter into. Football has elites. Politics has elites. Talent, there are elites. As long as they're open to people, I'm all for it. So I don't, I'm not worried about appearing elitist. Going back to your writing again, it's very reflective, very often, particularly when you talk about your childhood and your experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, at a stage in life where, you know, journalism is very different to when you entered the world mm -hmm. of journalism. Where are you going to take your writing over the next decade? I don't know if I'm going to take my writing over the next decade and what I'm planning to do. I have a couple of things. I have a book I'm working on now. I don't know if there's a future for me in journalism. I mean, I'll probably keep my hand in, but you can't make a living out of journalism. So I'm open to new things. I've got an idea for a screenplay. You know, every, what most writers have. Yeah. Are you going to stay with the craft of writing or would you do anything else in life? I became a journalist because there was nothing else I could do. I was too useless at anything else. So that's why I did it. But if I could find something else, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to do something that was socially more <laughs> redeeming, that made a better contribution to people's lives, you know, things like that. And use the experiences that you've had in life to give something back. I don't know if my experiences in life were worth giving back, but I'd like to give something back. <laughs> I don't know. How would you do that? Well, the obvious thing, you know, volunteer work. I like the idea. I've been 
you know, I'd like to do something like that. One skill I do have that I, is conversational. I can talk to all sorts of people. And there are a lot of lonely people I see, and I always try to talk to them whenever I meet them. And I'd like to see if I could expand on something like that would be suitable. I, I, I mean, you strike me that there's a streak of kindness in you. I hope in, so. And you write very affectionately about your brother. And you wrote a piece about your brother, which chimed a chord with me. I think you wrote a piece where you said your brother's still living at home at the age of 50 because he's a rock and roller and he's got the perfect life. Yeah. As it happens, my brother is still living at home mm. at the age of 50 or back at home at mm. the age of 50. And I thought there was very great affection there. He's not there, by the way, now. Yeah. He, he's moved up at that yeah, time. I wrote, I, I wrote a piece about how my brother was in a way my hero because he, he was the one much more adventurous. He was, you know, the artful dodger and I was Oliver. You know, he was the one always zooming around, having adventures, getting in trouble with the law and stuff like that. And I was a little sort of safe, boring one. Because you, you once bumped into him, almost <laughs> bumped into him, in an S&M club, right? I did. You were there after a party. I was there. I don't know if I was with Julie or somebody, but I heard this man making strange noises behind the screen. I said, darling, I'm just going to go see who's that <laughs> idiot over there getting whipped. I'm around the screen it's my brother down on all fours given he went hi cuz how are you want to join in he literally... and that was my, my he wasn't embarrassed or whatever he was just you know were you embarrassed no i was I just thought he was just killing self laughing yeah, and you wrote in the piece though that you you know you felt slightly uncomfortable because you were there almost as a spectator and then he's in there as an active participant yes i was quite happy to be a spectator I didn't want to participate. That didn't take you back to you. I mean, you know, there you've got these parents in an open relationship. Yeah. Later in life, there's your brother in an SMN club. And it takes you to your 60s to say you're having the best sex you've ever had. Yeah. I'm sorry to go back to sex. Okay, let's talk about it. It just interests me the theme through well, your Well, I, I wrote about sex, saying about that, because, you know, we had this conception that as you get older, what I thought... As you got older, these things got less important, less enjoyable, and that we older people could kiss great sex goodbye. And that's just not true. And nobody wants to talk about it. People are embarrassed. Uh, I mean, why does it take you to your 60s to have the best sex you've ever had, though? Is that because you I think it's kind of, that's kind of journalistic license. Maybe. Okay. I wouldn't say the best sex I've ever had, but wonderful times. I've been very lucky in that particular area. I'm just so pleased I'm having sex at all, you know, so... But is that because you're emotionally more connected in your 60s? You're more emotionally aware? That's what no, I'm trying to get to, your your sense of reflection and yes, who you, you are. you have a greater emotional intelligence. Yeah. You, you begin to understand how to do these things. You're a little more sensitive. You, you, know, you don't have a young man's hurried approach. You yeah. enjoy the company of a woman. And, you know, it's a part of a whole process. It's not just the sex, but what happens afterwards. It's the conversation and laughs and... All those things too. There isn't that, you know, that young man thing about conquest that you have. Whereas after a certain age, it's not conquest, it's companionship. Yeah. That I think you're looking for. Yeah. And that's a lovely thing to find. You see, I find that extraordinary. I find it extraordinary that you'd write about what? sex in your 60s. Just because I've never even... This is the first time I've ever spoken about sex publicly. I've got a world exclusive. I'm a, I'm a sort of closed-up <laughs> politician. But it was also just linked to your other writing. It struck me that you're almost a completely different person to the person who was writing all those very humorous pieces 25 years ago. Well, I think every writer adopts a certain persona. 
because it lends itself to a better read. If I was really realistic and scruple about myself, I don't, that would be kind of boring. So it's a bit of a comic persona, a little poetic license thrown in there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Go back to the modern review, which is mm. obviously where I think you sort of, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that was your sort of breakthrough moment in the public consciousness. How did the three of you come together? I was friends with Toby. Yeah. And when I took up with Julie, I sort of introduced Toby into the question. He was a very ambitious young man. I think he was at Oxford or, yeah. or Yale, somewhere. Anyway, he was there. And he became good friends with Julie. And they became kind of best buddies. And I was the kind of, you know, fat girl at the disco dragging along with the two stars <laughs> at, at that particular time. You know, Toby had done very well in journalism very quickly. In those days, to be a young writer, every newspaper wanted you. You know, yeah. you could get 10 columns straight away, 10 pieces published, whatever. And Julie was the height of her success. And so he came up with this idea, doing this magazine, and we sort of gave him the encouragement it was like a loaded gun. He had the loaded gun. I said, now, okay, Toby, fire the trigger. Now, let's do it. Yeah. And it was just like that. But it didn't seem like that, you know. I met somebody who saw a document. There was a documentary made about the Modern Review. And this young guy said to me, oh, it seems so glamorous. All those writers. <laughs> it was just three or four people in Toby's bedroom with his smelly socks and, you know, one computer. I mean, it wasn't like, you know. But it became a genuine thing, though, didn't it? It I mean, did it... become a thing for a lot of smart pop culture people and yeah. it became the wider media it was taken up by the sunday times you know it had its influence and its impact but you would i mean you, you self-deprecating humor again now you said i was the fat one at the disco you were absolutely central to the modern review well it didn't seem like that at the time if you go back and look at the press clippings it's mostly about toby and julie and i'm sort of in the shadows yeah a little bit but i don't say that resentfully they no. were the, you know they're, they're, I know, they were but the you, stars. You, yeah but you're i'm drawing you out now because I, I think it wouldn't have happened without your role in that i love that version tom and i'm going <laughs> to stick with that one <laughs> well I'll, I'll stick with that one and then i've got to go back to i mean your roller coaster life okay I mean, you obviously had great tragedy in your life. I have. My son uh, died in a suicide in 2015. And, of course, that is tragic. But, you know, I look at people and I hear stories of people that have lost sons, daughters, wives, every day. The most terrible nightmare events have happened to them. Mm. And, you know, I'm not going to minimize my 
grief or my sadness, and I miss him terribly, but, you know, I have to have a sense of perspective on it. I still consider myself a very lucky man. Yeah, I can imagine that's a very hard place to get to when you've had such a loss. Well, yeah, it is, and it's not, you know, I've never tried to find, you know, what they call closure or any of that you know my pain is keeps me connected to him it's part of the reality of life and you know i just deal with it you wrote a very tender eulogy and a very Mm -hmm. thoughtful one where you were i thought still almost working out your own feelings within the writing and you made it public well, that eulogy was written, uh, I hadn't written it for the public. It was only after somebody, I think Julie posted it on Facebook, and then somebody at the Independent said, could they use it? Yeah. Then I, I sort of agreed to do it. Yeah. It was respectful. You know, I, I can't imagine what it was like to write it, deliver it, and say it. And I'm just wondering five years on how that, as the, you know, I mean, does that still affect you? It might obviously grief affects you and you think about your boy all the time. Well, I've been writing this book about my son's death the last couple of years, so yeah. I, I'm still close to the material. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a life-changing event for you, though. I mean, you've got, it, you've got perspective in yourself. You're, I have perspective, but I don't have wisdom. A lot of people that go through suicides or the loss of a husband or a wife you know, there's a whole school that says this is how we grow and something good can come out of all these things and people set up charities and begin campaigns and so it's not happened for me i don't know if i could offer anyone advice or want to set myself up as anyone who's got really much to offer other than you know it sounds really try but to try to be a little kinder you know, I've got to live with my mistakes. I made lots of terrible mistakes with my son. And, you know, everyone's got to find their way through it. What kind it. of mistakes? I wasn't patient enough. I didn't understand how disturbed he was. I should have brought him back to come and live with me, even though I found living with him very difficult. I could have been a better dad. And I live with that. And I have to live with that. I don't know if I could have saved him. But he would have had a better chance. I could have done so much more. But, you know, that retrospective wisdom and understanding, you know, I tried at the time to be a good dad and to, to do what I could for him. I didn't make it. I, I'm not going to labour this because it's obviously painful. But it seems to me you've not forgiven yourself. People always said at the time... Oh, don't blame yourself. You were a good dad. And I always thought, how do you know? And I know people say that because people don't know what to say to a person that's lost a child. It's a very difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. People didn't know what to write to me. People didn't know how to handle it. It's a very awkward thing. And uh, there are days when I think I did all I could. And there are days when I thought, man, you screwed that one up. And you just have to get on. Yeah, you have to get on. And where are you going now then? You're writing a book about that episode. Yeah. Is that to help you understand yourself? Helps me. I wanted to get 
I touched on the subject in my eulogy is that I kind of felt I lost my son and I wanted him back. I yeah. lost the great kid that he was. You know, he had a deep problems with drugs and he became a different person. And I wanted my sweet boy back and writing about him and talking about him. I got him back. Yeah. So that was what I did. Doesn't mean that it's less painful or yeah. I, you know, made to make my I feel I've got my Jack back and that's yeah. a great feeling. I feel I want to say to you that you are a kind person and that you were a good dad and that there is good you can do in the world. It seems to me like that's actually what you want to do, but you're not, you don't quite have the confidence to go and do it. Um, I think that's probably right. I don't want to be glib and, you know, maybe I was a good dad and, you know, I, there were times when I was a bad dad. I really, trust me, I made a lot of mistakes. And by God, I wish I could have take those things back, but I can't. I can't change the past. I'm sure every dad does. You know, a lot of dads I've spoken to, I think this is very common. And one of the things I'm writing about is being a father. How our generation of dads, you know, who grew up with these men that were very distant and a bit far away and unaffectionate, they always said now that they've got kids, they're much more emotional with their kids and somehow better. And they still feel very disappointed. They still feel inadequate. And it, dad inadequacy is something we don't really talk about a lot. Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the themes of the book I'm trying to write. I still think it's hard for our generation. You're right, because they, you know, stiff upper lip parents or parents of the 60s who are sort of distant, it is hard to emotionally connect. Well, what's interesting is, though, that their children look back on these dads that were once so distant and whatever and say, oh, I love them so much. Yeah. It didn't kill the love. They no. admire them yeah. for some reason. And I think it's because that generation of dad didn't have that terrible anxiety, the whole existential ball sake of, am I a good dad? Am I a bad dad? They just got on with it, you know? There's yeah. something about that that's attractive to, I think, a younger generation. Would you ever see a point where you could help other dads be better no. dads? <laughs> no, I would never put myself in a position. Just too much. I just, you know, I'm still figuring it out now. I have a 15-year-old boy. I'm, you know, still struggling to get it right. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard. It's hard. Cosmo, I just want to ask your thoughts on culture in the 21st century. Right? Go ahead. Fire away. We've got a Tory government. We're in post-Brexit Britain. If you were setting up the modern review now, what would you be writing about? I don't know. I'd probably be defending a lot of the cultural values at one time I critiqued. You found this amongst a whole group of writers and critics and intellectuals, Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, who later said, who led the charge against proper culture, who now said, oh, I think we made a bit of a mistake there. Right. You know, this pop culture is all nice and trashy movies are lovely, but maybe the pendulum has gone too far. Yeah. And I think the difference now is that people like me, cultural gatekeepers, arbiters or whatever, opinion makers, we're redundant now. People have their own things. They do their own blogs. They're not interested in what some metropolitan critic like me really thinks that much. There are a couple of exceptions, but on the whole, everyone's got their own. We have a democratization of opinion. They don't need that group. But you don't think there's still a role for the public intellectual to take people on a cultural journey? Uh, I think there are, but I don't think the public think that. I mean, did the public not appreciate that? 
but they just don't think they should earn the salaries they used to earn, which is why there's... It's not just salaries, it's the prestige. I don't think that they enjoy so much. Okay. Where, where in the old days you had theatre critics, for example, everybody read a certain theatre critic to know what was going on. You had Ken Tynan, for example. Yeah. You had music critics, and even in enemy pop culture, there were, you know, Julie and Tony and people that you, Paul Morley yeah. that you listened to, who were the these were the people. And, and and in literature, I mean, with the exception of James Wood, you don't have that many great critics that command a real audience. So where now for culture there? I mean, who's going to be the arbiter of cultural elitism? <laughs> I think those days are over, mate. Even the question a, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, that's really the issue. But even with a Boris Johnson government, aren't we going to go... I mean, surely the arts are going to go through... A, well, a, look a how they did under Thatcher. <laughs> it didn't have such a great success taking her on writing indignant plays. I mean, I don't think she was too upset by David Hare and Hanif Karishi and uh, the voices of opposition. I think she managed to survive. Actually, it yeah. wasn't the writers. It was Douglas Herndon that took her down, which is a terrible irony. Well, he's another writer, of course, but uh, not, not, not quite on Hanif Qureshi's level. That was Cosmo Landisman, a man who needs his own podcast more than anyone. It's rare to meet someone who is so open and so thoughtful when a stranger turns up at their door. Join me again soon when I'll be talking to another person of interest. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 